All right, well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, church, we'd love for you to open it to Acts chapter 5, 27 to 32. Acts 5, 27 to 32, that's on page 913 in your pew Bible. We're going to drill down this morning on actually something we read last week, but that we didn't spend a lot of time on. Sometimes there are two or three or four massively incredible sermon-worthy topics in a passage. And uh, last week I wanted to spend some time unpacking and, and really spending a fair bit of time talking through application of the main idea in the text that we read last week, and that was the idea that when the state forbids us to do what God commands or commands us to do what God forbids, as Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. That's the big idea. It's complicated, though. So we spent a fair bit of time just talking about how do we apply that? And how does that go with other things the Bible said, like render unto Caesar what is due to Caesar and unto God what is due to God? So we spent a fair bit of time on that. But this week, I want to go back to something incredible that Peter said in his brief address to the Jewish Senate. At, at first glance, it, it may sound to you like a throwaway line. I assure you it is not. It, in fact, develops one of the most important themes in the entire book of Acts. So hopefully you have your Bible open now to Acts 5. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Did you trip over that when we read it last week? Did you trip over that as we read it this morning? Uh, I did. I, I tripped over that in my preparations last Tuesday, and actually two Tuesdays ago, and resolved to come back to it uh, this Sunday. At, as you read through the Bible, sometimes you read something, and it alerts your brain that you actually think that means something else. You you assumed that said something else. That's the benefit, by the way, of actually reading through the Bible. It serves to filter out some of your own assumptions. And that happened to me as I read that. I think somewhere in my brain, I thought that said, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who believe in him. But that's not what it says. I saw some of your heads just dip down right now as though even as I have been talking for the last several minutes, you have been assuming that says the Holy Spirit to whom God gives to those who believe in him. But again, it's saying something different. It's saying something actually bigger than that. And since I'm very eager for us to have more of the Holy Spirit, given the challenges and opportunities that lie before us over the coming years and decades, I thought it would be worth our time to dig into that. So let's do that. Let's begin by asking the obvious question. What does it mean to obey God in this particular context? What's Peter getting at here? 
Well, first and foremost, I think it means to respond appropriately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look at the context, what Peter is saying in his speech there, he doesn't say anything about the commandments. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit whom God gives to the person who keeps the commandments. Rather, he talks about Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So clearly in this context, to obey God means to respond to the message that has been preached by the apostles about Jesus. It means to identify Jesus as the one who can forgive sins. It means to acknowledge Jesus as your rightful leader and Lord. If you do that, then you will receive the Holy Spirit. If you do that, then you will be saved. And being saved means to receive the Holy Spirit. So that's a bigger category than just believing in Jesus. And it lines up better with how Jesus defined things in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 6, 46, for example, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus wanted to be crystal clear with everyone who was thinking about following him. Hey, just so you understand, there is no category of you being in right relationship with me. There is no category of saving faith that does not include these notions of allegiance and obedience. Salvation is not for those who believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus. According to the Bible, salvation is for those who obey him. In Hebrews 5.9, for example, the apostle says, referring to Jesus, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's another one of those verses that actually you trip over when you read. Because in your brain, you think that says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. But that's not what the Bible says. Now, to be clear, just so that we're absolutely clear, we're not talking about any kind of works-based salvation here, as if you can obey all the commands of Jesus and earn your way into salvation. That's not what we're talking about at all. What we're saying is that in the Bible, faith is a bigger category than mere belief. There's a faith equation. Faith is just a bigger word. We often think that faith is a synonym for believe, but that's not the case. Faith is a bigger word. Faith in the Bible might best be defined as belief plus repentance plus submission plus allegiance plus trust plus love. It's a bigger category than just believing. And so often to express that, the apostles will use the word obey where we might expect them to use the word believe. Paul in Romans 10, for example, says... But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Have you seen that? So Paul actually there is quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, which uses the word believed. But just so that there's no confusion, he actually beefs that up and uses the word obeyed. He wants to make sure we understand. Peter does the same kind of thing. In 1 Peter 4, 17, he uses that same language. He asks the question, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's not asking what happens to people who don't believe the gospel. He's asking a bigger question. The question is not, you know, what happens if you don't 
believe in the gospel. You understand the devil believes the gospel, right? The devil believes that Jesus is the the son of God, that he's truly God and truly man. The devil believes that Jesus lived a perfect life. The devil believes that Jesus died on the cross. The devil believes that Jesus rose again on the third day. The devil believes that Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand where he lives right now evermore to make intercession for the saints of God. The devil believes all of that. But the devil's not a Christian. The devil's not saved. Because you can believe things and not respond to them the way that you should. Salvation is for those who have heard who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who have responded to him as their Savior and Lord. That's who receives the Holy Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles. And that's who receives the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and in life. And so that means, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is given to those who have responded to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But I think we can actually take it even a step further. I think Peter is saying something thicker than just that. He's saying that, but I think he's saying something also thicker, bigger, more than that. In this context, to obey God also means persisting in your calling despite opposition and persecution. So look again at Acts 5.29, the verse we drilled down on last Sunday. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. So the obedience that is most immediately in Peter's mind is obedience under pressure. I. Howard Marshall makes that observation in his commentary. He says, Peter adds pointedly that it is those who obey God, in brackets, verse 29, exclamation mark, who receive the Spirit. Meaning it is those who obey God in an Acts 5, 29 kind of way. It is those who obey God under pressure who receive the Holy Spirit of God. Are you hearing that? So there's a both and dynamic here. Peter is saying that when we respond initially, when we respond the first time to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, then we receive the Holy Spirit in an initial sense. But he also seems to be saying that as we continue to obey Jesus as our Savior and Lord, under pressure, we receive the Holy Spirit in a subsequent sense. And of course, Peter has learned that lesson experientially in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 4, you remember there was a group of people, all of whom had received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. This, this happened to the early church shortly after Acts 2. They had received the Holy Spirit in an initial sense, and then they were arrested. They were ordered not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. When they were released, they gathered together for prayer, and Acts 4.31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Are you seeing that? When the church made the decision to press through their first brush with persecution and to carry on in the work of the Great Commission, no matter the cost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, even though they'd already been filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So there's an initial sense and there is a subsequent sense. In fact, it almost sounds like every time we make the faith decision to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior against opposition and persecution, God gives us more of the Holy Spirit. He gives more of the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Peter had lived that dynamic in Acts 4 such that he was bold to declare in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Peter understood that every time the world beats us down, 
if we are faithful to Jesus in that moment, then God is going to fill us up bigger, deeper, and stronger than ever before. And that is a bargain at twice the price. So what does that look like in practice? What is the effect of the Holy Spirit on a filled and subsequently filled church? Well, I think the first thing we'd want to say is that a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God receives help in fulfilling the Great Commission. That's really the first thing we learn about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you are going to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, and the Bible says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, speaking in tongues is kind of a controversial thing. There's a lot we could say about that. We've already said some, and as we kind of encounter these stories throughout Acts, we'll come at some point to really drill down and talk about that in depth. But the most important thing for us to understand here is that that was a real thing, but it was also a symbolic thing. That was God saying in a very impressive way that I am going to help you do what I've just commanded you. I am going to help you take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. I will equip you to do that which I am commanding you to do. At our staff meeting this past Monday, uh, Pastor Steve shared an interesting story. I think I'd heard it before, but I wasn't sure. I told a story about Erwin Lutzer. I'm not sure if you know Erwin Lutzer. He's, a, he's actually a Canadian pastor and a theologian who has done most of his ministry and career in Chicago. And uh, he taught a preaching class, and he used to take preachers, apparently, out to the cemetery as part of his class. Uh, I, by the way, you should take your kids to the cemetery. I take my kids to the cemetery. It's important to remind kids that everybody dies, that death is part of life. But I never thought of taking the preaching workshop out to the seminary, uh, cemetery. <laughs> seminary, cemetery, yeah, you never know, whatever. But apparently, Pastor Luther takes his preaching class to the cemetery, and he has them deliver their sermons to the tombstones, and he does that to make a point. <laughs> and the point is that preaching the gospel to dead people is an impossible mission, humanly speaking. But thanks be to God, we serve a Savior who knows how to raise the dead. Do you understand that? Every time... I feel like that as a preacher. I feel like every time you step into the pulpit, you're doing something absolutely impossible. You're doing something ludicrous. What possibility do you have of penetrating anybody's mind or heart? It is impossible. And it is impossible for you. Every time you sit down at Tim Hortons, I mean, you know, being a pastor and being a pastor in this church for 17 years now here, I have heard so many times from grandmas and grandpas, from from people who are concerned about their kids. You know, pastor, my, my kid, my grandkid, my friend, my neighbor, whatever, they are, they are just so locked into the wisdom of the world. They are just so disinterested in the gospel. And every time I'm, I open my mouth, it's like their eyes glaze over. They don't want to hear it. They're not interested in hearing it. They are completely closed to the things of God. And sometimes you just feel despair. But the reality is, 
in the kindness of God, that's just God actually in that situation making you aware of what is true in every conversation. In every conversation, you are speaking to a person who is spiritually dead. You know that, right? In Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. According to the Bible, that's who you were before God did a miracle in you. That's who you were before the Holy Spirit came into your heart and softened that heart, made cracks in your heart so that the seeds of the gospel could find purchase. That's who you were before the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and dug ears for you so that you could see and hear and believe that the Christ is Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit could have done that miracle in you, then of course the Holy Spirit can do that miracle through you when you speak to other people. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church to equip her in doing the impossible things she has been commissioned by Jesus to do. That's an interesting dynamic. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church to equip her in doing the impossible things she has been commanded by Jesus to do. When you hear it like that, it kind of implies that we cannot do the things that Jesus has commanded us to do without divine help. It sounds like Jesus is asking more of us than we can pull off. Of course, that is true. Pastor Rob led us in a devotion yesterday. I think Pastor Matt, uh, who was just up here a minute ago, mentioned that we were on a board retreat this weekend. That is true. Pastor Rob led us in a devotion yesterday, and he quoted from the old Puritan pastor John Flavel, who said that when it comes to the Christian life and ministry, the duty belongs to us, but the power belongs to God. Do you understand that? Jesus commands us to do impossible things, and it's our duty to do those things. Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. But then he said something marvelous. He said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, why do he say that? Because if he doesn't help us, then we can't do any of that. You can't make a disciple of Jesus Christ without his help. You can't convert anyone. You can't baptize anyone. You can't teach anyone anything without help from Jesus Christ. And how do we receive that? Through the falling and filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, this past weekend at our board retreat, we made some audacious plans. Uh, It was the biggest, hairiest, most audacious board retreat we've had in over a decade. I mean, we made some plans. But I'll tell you this, unless the Holy Spirit empowers those plans, then those who pursue them, pursue them in vain. You know that, right? When we were driving home from the retreat, um, I, I drove home uh, with James Hauser and with a couple others, but we were, or which actually just, it was just James and Matt and I on the way home, and, and uh, I was sitting in the front, and I was kind of doing some math in my head, and I said to James, you know, by my reckoning, 
I think we have enough money in the bank to pay for one-tenth of one-third of what we just committed ourselves to at this retreat. <laughs> he said, yeah, sounds about right. He says, but you know what? Then that puts us exactly where God wants us. I think that's exactly right. Ours is the duty. It is our job to do the things Jesus told us to do. It is our job to make plans to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. It is our job to make disciples. That's our duty. But His is the power. And He has the power. He gives generously of His Holy Spirit to those, ah, to those who obey Him. So first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is given to help the church complete the Great Commission. Then secondly, we see in the story that the Holy Spirit is given, and given again, to the church to help her in speaking truth to power. Jesus had told Peter and the other disciples to expect this help. He said in Mark 13, 9 to 11, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand in terms of what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to be careful with a passage like that. I've had to remind a few uh, young pastors that I was mentoring that this is not Jesus giving you permission you know, to skimp on sermon prep. This is not Jesus saying, uh, don't bother doing any sermon prep, just get up into the pulpit and fire up a quick prayer, and the Holy Spirit will give you something to say, right? I, you know, heaven help us from too much preaching like that, I would argue. Uh, one of the things we see in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit wasn't given so that we could be lazy and fail to prepare. So that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is looking forward and he's anticipating some extraordinary circumstances. He's, being, he's anticipating that at some point we're going to get arrested and we're not going to have access to our, you know, Logos Bible commentary uh, on, and we're not going to have access to all our tools. We're not going to have the opportunity to study and prepare, but we are going to be given the opportunity to speak truth to power. And in that moment, then we can expect help from the Holy Spirit. It sounds almost like Jesus anticipated that every once in a while, God would orchestrate a strategic arrest or two so that the gospel could be preached to those in high places. And of course, that's what we see in the book of Acts. In the previous chapter, when Peter was arrested for the first time, the Bible says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. I don't know, when you, when you read your Bible, if you trip on things like I trip on things. Sometimes it takes me a long time to do my Bible readings in the morning because you, you think, well, it should take me about you know, five minutes per chapter, and there's four chapters, that should take 20 minutes, and then two hours later you wonder, what in the world's going on? It's because you've, you've tripped on some things that demand further thought. That doesn't happen very often. That happens when I have two hours, which is usually once or twice a week. But you trip on things. I trip on this. Because this is the same Peter who back in Matthew 26 was intimidated by a servant girl into denying Jesus three times. And now here all of a sudden he is staring down 
the entire Jewish Senate. So what's going on here? What's going on is that Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That makes all the difference in the world. My friends, I believe that the church is going to be called upon to speak truth to power again in the years and decades ahead. And I think we should, we should prepare for that. I, I've been preparing for that. I've been reading all kinds of books on the relationship between the church and the state so that if I ever have the opportunity, I can argue for our continuing place and permission in the culture. I've been reading all kinds of books about the theological foundations of Western culture. I've been doing that because it seems entirely possible to me that at some point in the future, I may find myself in the exact same position as the Apostle Peter, being arrested and through that arrest being given the opportunity to speak truth to power. And in that moment, I want to be prepared. But far more important than that, I want to be empowered. I want to receive help from the Holy Spirit of God. So I want to obey Him now. I want to be crystal clear in my allegiance now so as to position myself to receive further grace and filling in my hour of need. And I advise you to do the same. Because a day may come when you will be summoned into the boss's office to explain why you are not wearing the rainbow shirt. A day may come when you will be summoned into the CEO's office to explain why you will not sign off on the shady tax deal that could save your company an awful lot of money. A day may come when you will be summoned to speak to the superintendent of the school system to explain why you won't teach the soul-crushing curriculum that has been assigned to you for that week. And you're going to need help from the Holy Spirit on that day. So you want to make your allegiance to Jesus Christ clear today. Because according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. And then thirdly, we see here in the book of Acts that in a filled and subsequently filled church, we're going to receive help in making hard decisions. To say that Jesus' word is authoritative is not to say that it addresses every situation and scenario that we're going to face in life. Sometimes you're going to need help to choose between multiple possible and morally neutral options. So we see that, for example, in Acts 13. That church had multiple preaching pastors, but they were also aware that there were several regions near them that didn't have any gospel witness at all. So who should they send? Now, of course, the Bible doesn't give us specific answers to questions like that. And so for a situation like that, you need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the church in Acts, having obeyed God under pressure in Acts 4 and 5, had that. Praise the Lord. So Acts 13, 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, isn't that wonderful? I'll read that again. These are all things we should trip over. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now listen, I'm guessing that had the board of elders in that church made that decision on their own, this is not the team that they would have decided to send, right? Because Paul and Barnabas were their best preachers. This was the A team. If they had made this decision without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm guessing they send the co-op student, right? You understand? But they prayed... And the Holy Spirit guided and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And of course, as you know, that was the right decision. 
Numerous churches were planted because of the work of that team. We catch another glimpse of this dynamic a few chapters later. The church was facing its first internal crisis. As more and more Gentiles uh, were coming into the church, you understand the first layer of the church was almost exclusively Jewish, and then all of a sudden we have this massive influx of, of Gentile folks coming in in the last half of the story in the book of Acts. Folks like the household of Cornelius, they're coming in, and that created problems because, of course, Gentiles don't eat kosher, and the Gentile converts weren't keeping the Old Testament feasts, and the, the Gentiles were wearing pants of mixed fibers, right? Cats and dogs were getting together. It was madness. And, and so what do you do in a situation like that? You don't want to be disrespectful to the Old Testament, but on the other hand, you don't want to undermine the explosive realities of the New Testament either. So what do you do? Getting it wrong in that situation would have massive consequences. So they sought the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And according to the Apostle James, they received it. In the letter that he sent out to the churches announcing the decision of the council, he said, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then he outlined a very reasonable compromise based upon freedom in Christ on the one hand and then mutual respect for brothers and sisters on the other hand. It was brilliant and it was 100% Holy Spirit inspired. Friends, again, given the complexity of issues we are likely to face as we try to continue to minister in this cultural context over the next years and decades ahead, we are going to need the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I was reading a book uh, a couple weeks ago in preparation for the board retreat. It was a book on uh, politics and economics. It wasn't specifically theological, but it was just to help provide a little little context about the wider world out there. And this is a line I tripped on in there. He, he was tracing out all these various economic trends and blah, blah, blah. And he's, there's a line there that he said, 2019 was the last good year. I thought, well, that's depressing. And he was just kind of tracing out some of these trends that were already in existence before the pandemic, that then the pandemic put pressure on and made even worse. And I, I just, wow. It does seem that we've come out into a slightly more complicated world than the one we left behind, doesn't it? More pressures. A lot happened while we were under lockdown. You think of all the, the riots that happened in the States. You know, the Portland riot went on for over a year. There's a lot of cultural fracturing happening out there. And if we're going to continue to navigate, if we're going to continue to make decisions, if we're going to continue to prioritize and strategize and be in the right place at the right time with the right gospel message, then we are going to need wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit. So let's agree now to obey God. Let's agree now to make our allegiance clear in all the day-to-day challenges that we face so that we're properly positioned to receive it. And fourthly and lastly, in a filled and subsequently filled church, people are receiving help to finish well. Shortly after Peter says what he says here in Acts 5, Stephen comes under the microscope in Acts 6. Like Peter, he was given the truth to speak truth, or given the opportunity to speak truth to power. Like Peter, he received help from the Holy Spirit. Acts 6 says that some representatives from a variety of Jewish synagogues Uh, started engaging directly with Stephen. 
in a hostile way. Verse 10 in Acts 6 says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was arrested, brought before the council, again, was helped by the Holy Spirit to speak with great power. But unlike Peter in Acts 5, Stephen actually in this situation was required to pay the ultimate price. Acts 7, 54 to 58 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. See, sometimes being filled with the Holy Spirit of God doesn't mean that you reap a great gospel harvest. Sometimes it means that you are empowered to be faithful to the Lord in your witness, even to the point of death. A dear lady in our church once confessed to me that she did not believe that she had the courage to be faithful to the Lord Jesus under pressure. She was worried that if ever her grandchildren were threatened, for example, she might be tempted to disown the Lord. I think all honest, self-aware Christians wonder about that sort of thing from time to time. But I reminded this dear lady that God gives us the grace to meet the challenges at hand. We pray for our daily bread, not our monthly bread. We can't look inside ourselves and see today the strength that we'll need for the challenges of tomorrow. And so the best thing that you can do today is to take the message of the book of Acts to heart. This text. Obey God today in whatever circumstances you may find yourself. Make your allegiance to Jesus clear today under whatever pressures you are exposed to. And with each daily declaration... And with each act of faithful following, you will better position yourself to be filled and further filled with the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, given the challenges and opportunities that lie before us, we are eager to be filled and further filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Lord, as we read the scriptures, it doesn't look like what we need to do is jump up and down. It doesn't look like what we need to do is crank up the volume on the sound system. It doesn't look like what we need is a fog machine. What it looks like we need is a commitment to day-to-day -day consecration. It looks like what we need is a commitment to make our allegiance plain. Lord, it looks to us as we read through the book of Acts, that you are eager to empower those who are stepping out boldly in Jesus' name, and that with each step, we will be met with further supply. And so, Lord, that, of course, that takes faith on our part. We need to take a first step. Lord, I imagine that there is somebody here today who's felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit just today to take a step of obedience. Maybe it's to make it known in their workplace that they're a follower of Jesus, Maybe it's to begin putting a step of distance between themselves and a temptation that they frequently succumb to. 
Lord, I would imagine the Holy Spirit has been very active in this room right now, just pointing out those steps that could better position each of us to receive further filling and empowerment. And Lord, we're going to need that for some of the things you've called us to. So I just pray right now that you would help each person under an impression like that to take that step and that you would quickly then reward them with further grace and power so that they could feel this dynamic as Peter felt it in Acts 4. Lord, you can't say the things Peter said in Acts 5 until you've had at least a taste of this experience in Acts 4. And so, Lord, I I pray that you'd give it to us in each of the small steps that we take with your help, by your grace, and for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.